0: Today is uh, Sunday, September 13th, and uh, it's, of course, 2015. Our message today is called Shofar and Shalom. Uh, I'm going to put that up here just so you can think about those words for a minute. A shofar is a ram's horn, and shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. And really, when you think about those things, they, uh, there is no apparent... Relationship Before it's over, I think you'll see a relationship between them. And I would like to tell you that the Gregorian calendar that we use, based on um, Julian's work earlier, is not the Bible calendar. And because it's not the Bible calendar, sometimes we look at things like, you might see the language of Hebrew is written from the uh, right-hand side of the page to the left. And what would we usually say about that? Hey, that's written backwards. No, it's not backwards. We're backwards. It it came before English, praise God. And um, as much as King Jimmy liked to believe English was the holy language, it, it's not true. It's never been true. And anybody that is reading this tweeting, texting generation knows how untrue that is. Well, the original calendar was Hebrew. How do we know that? We know that because the book that chronicles the creation ...of man moving forward, uh, these, this is the story of the Hebrews. And um, with that in mind, their days start differently than ours do. So we wake up, and uh, actually some of you stay up until the next day. In the, in the Roman uh, manner of keeping time, we have 24-hour days that begin and end at midnight. You know what I mean? Midnight, 12, 12 uh, o'clock in the middle of the night... How many of you is that actually the middle of the night for anymore? Right? You're lucky if you can get to bed by then. Others of you have no idea what I'm talking about. If we were an agricultural community, it really would be the middle of the night. Because the sun tends to go down around 6 in the evening and rise around 6 in the morning. And so 12 really was the middle of the night, hence the term midnight. But in the Bible, the creation story, we find out on the first day there was evening And there was morning the first day. So how do your days start in the Bible? They start in the evening. I'd like you to consider a very subtle difference this makes as we step into the Word today. If what you do is you wake up and it's daylight hours, and you get your day started at Starbucks or wherever else you go, and then you get to work and you work hard all day, and then you go home at the end of the day, what does your family get? (laughs) Leftovers what's left at the end of the day if however your day starts at 6 pm in the evening when the sun goes down what does your family get the first and best part of your life what does the rest of the world get whatever grew out of the first and best part of your life now let me ask you is god's way better or is our way better we're going to cover some things like that today because tonight at six o'clock is rosh hashanah rosh hashanah Is a Hebrew feast, and the Hebrews were given feast by God to celebrate for the whole world's benefit. Rosh Hashanah means head of the year, okay? If uh, that doesn't make sense to you, if that has no meaning, that's okay. We'll explain some of it as we go. In your Bible, it's called the Feast of Trumpets. Before we get that far, though, I want to read you something from 1 Corinthians... Chapter 10 and verse 11. This is speaking of the older covenant in the Bible. Uh, It's very common today in Christianity for people to say, hey, that's Old Testament, as if somehow it's irrelevant or archaic or no longer useful. But the New Testament says about the Old Testament this. Verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages... Has come. Where were these things written? They were written in the Older Testament. The Newer Testament itself endorses the Older Testament. In fact, they're one contiguous book, 66 books that speak one message about God. The New Testament is not grace as opposed to the Old Testament. They're both grace. If you look at the hundreds of years between God's warnings and his fulfillment of judgment, how could you see it as anything other than grace? If I woke up every day and told you something for 120 years and you didn't listen and in the 121st year you reaped the result of not listening, would you describe me as patient? Would you describe me as graceful? Or am I uh, quick to act and angry and ready to beat you with a stick? Well, that was 120 years Noah built that boat. <laughs> you know This is not uh, judgmental. This is grace. We've just looked at it through the wrong eyes. In fact, I want to show you in Deuteronomy 30. Turn with me there. So it would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. What God says about this. We're going to read Deuteronomy 30. And we can put 15 through 20 on the screen. That will let me walk away from the pulpit and uh, be able to write while we do it. He says, see, I set before you today life. Life, in Hebrew, looks something like that. It's transliterated... Hi. I Like, hi. how are you? Right? Like you have milk in the back of your throat. And he says, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering Possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call heaven and earth as a witness against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. Say that with me. Now choose life. God is pro-life. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to His voice and hold fast to Him. For the Lord is your The Lord is your life. And He will give you many years in the land He swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob." When you're thinking of this Hebrew word, kai, made of a chet and a yod, uh, and we translate it life, consider that we have a lot of different meanings for the word life. We say, oh, hey, man, I'm living the life. Um, we might say, uh, my father gave me life. We might say, that's my work life. This is my church life. That is my social life. This is my family life. Those descriptors for us compartmentalize life. And we often begin to believe that we can live one life in one place and another life in another place because we see them as compartments all of one big life. In Hebrew, there is no way to compartmentalize this word. All life is spiritual Life. Now the reason that I'm telling you that is because the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, indeed the Tanakh, the whole Older Testament, is all aimed at one thing, that you would choose life. You may have been told your entire life that the Older Testament was there to beat you down, it was there to magnify your sin, it was there as a weight around you so that Jesus could liberate you. Um, it may have done those things because of our bad choices. <laughs> But that's not what it's aimed at. The Torah is aimed always at you having a life that God would bless, that he himself would be your life. So if God ever said something, it was for your benefit. And I want to show you some examples of what that looks like in our life. When you see a sign, it won't be brown, but I put brown on the board so you can see it, that says this while you're driving down the road. What does that mean to you? Somebody said 75. There's at least one honest person in the house of God today. And who said 75? I won't pick on you. All right, Rob. 75. And, and I'm proud of you because it could have been 80, right? Could have been 85. Um, where there is no law, there is no transgression, right? See, pastors know how to justify sin. That's, that's why so many of them go so badly. Uh, oh, that we would not be justified in our own eyes, but be justified in God's eyes. When Rob saw the sign that said 65, Rob immediately said 75. You know why? He's got a built-in grace period. (laughs) I mean, he does. He says, you know, cops probably not going to give me a ticket for 76. I'm sorry, for 66. Probably not going to give me a ticket for 67, 68. But somewhere around 75, I, I could be in trouble. So the law number one is not really the law to Rob or to any of us. We have a built-in grace period, right? This distorts the way we view God's law. It's like he said it, but, you know, he, 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 didn't, he didn't really mean that. He meant kind of, sort of, knowing your heart. Now, what if he actually meant what he said? What if when he says 65, he means 65? Now, let me ask you, and, and Rob, I love you, mostly because of your beard, right? So Rob says 75, but if Matthew is a policeman, right, like Erica Estrada and Chips, do yeah. you know what I mean? So, uh, so now Matthew's pulled up on his on his uh, Los Angeles PD Harley. He's behind you, and you see the lights. What do you do immediately? Uh, yeah, that's right. And when you see a policeman, sixty-five becomes sixty-four <laughs> point nine, doesn't it? Yeah. So, to us, what law is 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 really. If we're going to be caught or viewed, we need to do this. If we are not caught or viewed, then we have grace. Now, let me ask you. He said, "But they're just street signs, Eric, it doesn't matter." Okay, well, I, some of you know that I have a Ford truck. If you ever want to see it, it's usually parked in a repair shop. And um And I I love it. I I it's like my little dachshund, y'all know I preach about him all the time. He, he's so pathetic that he's lovable. Well, my truck's broken enough that I'm really endeared to it. Like I love every little rusty bolt on it. And besides, it's kept us very close with the mechanical families in the church. So if I'm driving my, tra- my truck and travel trailer, and my travel trailer, by the way, is 14 feet and 2 inches tall. And, and we see this sign. And the sign says 13 feet Seven inches. And then it says clearance. Or height or elevation or whatever it says. And uh, where are the young Ereginas? Yeah, we did this, didn't we? Oh, how about that? Uh, This is not one of those signs that you look at and you go, are the cops around? Because if they're not, hey man, we can do it. Why not? What's the difference? They're both law. So, what's the difference? Well, this one's got a built in grace period, unless, of course, there's a cop there. This one to you is reality. It's, it's not simply a warning with a built in grace period. To you, this tells you that bridge is exactly 13 feet 7 inches. My load is 14 feet high. And if I try to go under it, what's it going to do? Destroy my whole setup. What if this is God's view and not this? What if the only reason God ever tells you anything is because He doesn't want you to do something that will destroy your whole setup? What if He's not the mean... Oh, I mean, when you see this sign, are you thankful for it? Or are you mad that it's there? Do you resent its very presence? like, oh, how could these people label these bridges? They're so narrow-minded and mean! Very intolerant of you not to let me drive this giant rig down. No, friend, drive it. You just drive it. Drive right under that bridge as hard and as fast as you want to. I'm simply speaking to you about a reality. I'm not speaking to you about some system trying to catch you and bend grace around to cover you. I'm telling you what the spiritual realities are as I have personally experienced them. By the way, do you know when these signs become very important to you? When you drive a 14-foot load under a 13-foot, 7-inch power line, and you tear the whole apparatus off the pole and drag it down the road a while. (laughs) We overcome by our testimonies, friends. (laughs) And you might be a redneck if you've ever had to get out of your white Ford F-350, look for a Sawzall, climb up on top of your motorhome or what do we call it, travel trailer and cut the the company's utility lines off of your trailer so that you can drive away, right? Um, I believe that when God says, I set before you life and death, this sign is both life and death. It's life if you obey it, and it's death if you don't. This is not a mean God. This is a God who cares enough to tell you there's obstacles in your way, and I'm trying to help you navigate this. I might be able to see something you can't see given that I'm called the Ancient of Days and your life is how long? What if that's God's heart? What if He never intended you to compartmentalize your life into 12 different groupings? He wanted you to live your entire life fully, completely in His Word to the point where He says, I am your life. You might say any area that is not governed by God's Word is not in life, it's in death. That, that is a, a reality. Uh, before we move on from this, let's put Deuteronomy 5.29 on the screen. When it's up there, somebody say there. Y'all are quiet this morning. Are you doing all right? It's not possible I've already made you mad. We're not halfway through. least not more than half of you mad yet we might get to everybody though you never know could be a good day in Deuteronomy 529 listen what, how, what would we say about the expression oh <laughs> I'm scared what might come out of the audience for this so let me answer it this is an expression of emotion right if I say uh, <laughs> I love crawfish that, that says something more than I love crawfish. If I go, oh, that hurts my heart. That says something more than uh, I'm experiencing pain. It, it, it magnifies emotion. Do you know who's speaking here? This is God. Right after he gives 10 commandments, he says, oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always. "...so that it might go well with them and their children forever." You serve a God, or don't serve a God, that wants your life to go well. And all the confusion about seeing the signs and saying, it's just condemning, it's just... I preached in a bar a couple weeks ago. I had a great time. And, um, I mean, it was a little awkward for me, but I think the gospel should take you places that are a little awkward. And when I was done preaching in the bar, people came up to me with tears in their eyes, and I asked something, are y'all a judgmental church? I didn't know what to say about that, you know. They obviously didn't think I was judgmental while I was preaching, or they wouldn't have come talk to me, wouldn't have been crying, wouldn't have been moved in those ways. And I didn't want to say, yes, we're a judgmental church, because that's not how I see us. So I responded with, we're a church that teaches the truth. And you know what most of them did? Oh, Listen, you cannot like that it's 13 feet 7 inches, but it doesn't change the reality. It's not judgmental to say it's 13 feet 7 inches. It's, that's not judgmental. That's loving. You know, some people are always going to see a budget as, as restriction. They see what they can't do, what they can't do. Others are going to say, look what I'm free to spend. I'm encouraging you to take a right look at the Word of God. Don't, don't accept what somebody's been saying about it from a pulpit, not even me. Look into it for yourself. We live in a day when people are raising up teachers to teach what their itching ears want to hear. Basically, anybody that will tell you you're all right as you are without changing, regardless of spiritual realities, everybody loves and is flocking to. And all of the ministries that have built their fame and success on an entertainment type platform... They're having to wrestle with questions about biblical realities, and they're saying, you know, our positions are kind of evolving on it. You know, thirteen feet seven inches never becomes twelve feet. Amen. It, it doesn't. It is what it is, no matter what changes around us. Amen. Look, I, I'm fat. I mean, that's that's a reality. Oh. <laughs> I don't hate my scale when I stand on it. The scale <laughs> is the scale. It hates me when I stand on it. I mean. It'd much rather Gabe stand on it. He can eat Twinkies all day long and the kid can't gain a pound, right? I can look at a Twinkie from a distance and I immediately gain weight. You're not supposed to hate the standard. It is the standard. If there's anything to be hated, it's our behavior that doesn't want to live up to the standard. You know what grace is? Grace is when God's power comes in and helps you meet that standard. It's it's not the ability to ignore the standard. It's not the ability to change the standard. It's when His power enables you to meet that standard. The way Titus says it is the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Grace teaches us to say no. And yet the way the church speaks about grace most of the time is, well, I know I just raped, pillaged, and murdered, but praise God, there's grace. No, that's not what grace is. It never has been. Grace is, uh, hey, I'm telling you about this sign and I'm going to give you the ability to slow down and turn around so that your life's not wrecked. And if you have hit the bridge, I can help you put it back together, but you're not going to be able to keep going through this as a tunnel. You're going to have to turn back around and go out to life. Is your sin causing you to feel trapped in a tunnel? Look at Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is an excellent example of the way that the Hebrews see uh, the Older Testament. And those of you that are students in our class, we've moved from the law to the writings. You will also see a New Testament and a Navim, a prophet, in this message today. So in Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Come on, somebody say reviving the soul. <laughs> That's better than an energy drink. You drink of the word of God and it revives the soul. By the way, if you're speeding down the road at 65 miles an hour and you see this sign and you see it with only so many feet and you slam on the brake and praise God you got your trailer brakes working and you come to a stop inches from it, what does that do to your soul? <laughs> yeah, you're like, whoo- you're in a cold, you're in a sweat, man. You've never been more alive. If you crash into it, what does it do to your soul? It, it melts you, man. It breaks you down, okay? Uh, the point is not to get as close to sin as we can. It's that when you see the word directing your life, it brings you back to life because there's hope for us. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple, <laughs> You know, how'd you know not to go down that road? I mean, you're so wise. No, I read the sign. I'm always amazed that in my family there's this fear of computers. I know um, that can be a generational thing. They're like, how? How did you do that? Well, it says right here to click on this if you want to go forward. It's not a great mystery. You know, we're staring at it like a monkey staring at a computer. Gnats and flies are circulating around our open mouth. I'm like, I read the screen. Everywhere I ever worked while I was a Christian, my bosses were um, impressed that there seemed to be a wisdom that went beyond my years. When I was 18, they didn't see me as a normal 18-year-old. When I was 30, they didn't see me that way. And they didn't know that I was simply quoting from the Word without telling them it was... The Word. The Word makes wise the simple. Who doesn't want to be revived and made wise? The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. I do a lot of counseling. And one of the most painful things that I ever see, it's, it's hurtful, is when you share a truth like the bridge is 13 feet 7 inches and somebody's already crashed under it. In fact, they're stuck. They can't figure out how to get out. And you watch them blush with shame and guilt. You know, it's a wicked person that wants people to be under shame and guilt because God doesn't. He doesn't. In fact, in the first five chapters of Leviticus, he gives us five sacrifices. And sacrifice number four deals with sin and sacrifice number five deals with guilt. And if you can't afford the offering, he gives you an alternative. And if you can't afford that offering, he gives you another alternative because God wanted you to be able to deal with guilt. Say, well, why then do we feel that way? The answer is then to have no morals. No, you're supposed to feel that way for the same reason that your body has a pain response when you touch an electrical outlet. That guilt and shame is to turn you away from things that will destroy you. And trying to ignore that response, it it won't change the height of the bridge. If you are surrounded by guilt and shame, know that that's not how God wants you to live. He never did. He, he's not the God who, who delights in a creation that is guilty and full of shame. He came to liberate the creation. In fact, His very word gives joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinance of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them your servant is warned. Oh man, have you ever made a terrible mistake and you knew somebody that could have warned you and they didn't? You know, uh, I I don't know about you, but that strains a friendship for me. You know what ought to drive your witness? Not that you uh, are mad at somebody. Not, not that you want them to feel guilty or shame. You want to warn them that this kind of destruction can be avoided. And, and presumably, that warning is based on the fact that you've been under that bridge, uh, crushed under it, rammed into it, and, and you're saying, the Lord's rescued me and you never have to be this way again. In this body, sitting in here right now, It's not my business to point anybody out, and I'm not going to. But I know you. We have ex-drug addicts in here. We have ex-homosexuals in here. We have ex-adulterers in here. We have uh, ex-inmates in here. And you know what? That's not what we are anymore. We're free from those things, and yet not so free that you never have to struggle and fight. The Word of God constantly warns us. Because he loves us. He's a friend to us. Uh, I wish that people got a chance to experience real Christianity more. I'm convinced that they wouldn't hate it. Uh, that they, they would at least see the truth of it. And if they hate the truth, then it's it's because of what it says about them, but not simply because the people are mean-spirited. Uh, let's do this. Let's jump into another scripture. Uh, Since it's Rosh Hashanah, let's go to Numbers 29, and we're going to read verse 1. Say uh, there when you were there. Can I erase this? Y'all okay? Somebody say yes or no? Okay. While we're talking about the realities of the kingdom... Numbers twenty nine one says, on the first day of the seventh month, that's interesting, the seventh month, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. It is, the day, it is a day for you to sound the trumpets. One of the things that you need for a kind of historical backdrop is in the seventh month, there happened to be uh, three feasts. And... You need to know what all of the feasts are so that you can go through these. The first one, Passover. The second one, Unleavened Bread. Third one, Feast of Firstfruits. Fourth one, Weeks or Pentecost or Shavuot if you want it in Hebrew that. Fifth one, trumpets, which is Rosh Hashanah. It's what we're speaking about today. Sixth one, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. And seventh one, tabernacles, Sukkot in Hebrew. Now, in the first month, When you're talking about Passover, Passover is the time period where Egypt had received a death sentence and anybody living in Egypt. And God said, if you will go into the home of a Hebrew and cover your doorpost with the blood of a lamb, then I will cause death to pass over you. This was a teaching example for the whole nation. In fact, the whole nation and also other nations joined them, a mixed multitude came out of Egypt. So Egyptians heard the warning and came too. Death passed them by. And when they came out, God considered them a, a new nation. In fact, he says they were baptized in the Red Sea in the Newer Testament. Once you had received the blood of the Lamb, the next feast that you came to was unleavened bread. It actually started the minute that Passover started. They were concurrent although one went on further than the other. When you receive the blood of the Lamb, you would take a menorah. A menorah is the seven branches of light from God's Word. So it's a candle designed by God. You would take this seven-fold menorah through your house, and the Father would lead the search, whole family watching. And mom would have spread out breadcrumbs throughout the house. It's where we get the idea of spring cleaning. This feast is in the spring. And the whole family would go and pick up these breadcrumbs on their hands and knees, symbolizing that when we have come under the blood of the lamb, we have a responsibility to clean our house. You know, coming under the blood of the lamb and piling garbage in your house was never intended. Uh, In fact... If your house smells like garbage, that might be what they notice instead of the blood of the lamb, right? So, in any case, the Father would lead you by the light of God's word. As this process was happening, another thing was happening. There was a wheat harvest and a barley harvest in the next few months. And you would go out to the field and grab a sheaf of wheat or barley. And you would wrap a red ribbon around it. And you would say, the very first from my field... I want to bring and wave before God at the temple. I want you to know that the very best I have comes to you first, and there's more like it out there. On the Feast of first fruits, which happens on the first Sabbath three days after the Passover, if you get lost in that, just follow the narrative. Three days after Passover, usually, is when God raised Jesus from the dead. And it was the Feast of first fruits. It was a way of saying, here is a perfect human being who's been raised from the dead, who will reign at the right hand of God, and there's a whole field of His brothers out there, and they will come in too. Well, while this was happening in the agricultural and the religious world, you would go to the third month of the year. And in the third month of the year, 50 weeks after Passover, they would bring in the rest of the harvest. All of Israel was gathered on this day. And at Pentecost, while all of Israel's gathered, you can read about this in Acts 2, Leviticus 23, uh, also Numbers 28 and 29. When you do this, what's happening is the whole harvest is coming in, more that are exactly like that original. Do you follow me? This is where we get the word Christian, so to speak. We're supposed to be exactly like the original. He was the best of us all, and we're supposed to be like Him being brought into the house of God. It turns out also that this commemorated the time that God spoke to the people from the mountain of Sinai. He spoke to them in the third month, and the whole nation heard the voice of God. Well, at Pentecost in Acts 2, the whole nation that was obedient heard the voice of God again. Do you remember that the reports in Acts 2 where we hear them speaking uh, in other tongues, praising God in our languages? They were all speaking in other tongues, but the people all heard them in their languages. This is like God speaking and His voice being like a trumpet at Mount Sinai, but the people understanding the meaning of the words. Okay, history was repeating itself, so to speak. Well, these first four feasts occur in the three months of the year. And now we've come to trumpets, the fifth feast. These all occur in the month of Tishri, which at 6 o'clock tonight we enter into. The reason that I'm taking the time to do this is Tishri is a very special feast. Tishri is blowing of the shofar. That's a ram's horn that looks like this. What an interesting symbol this is. Why do rams have these things? Hey, if you mess with the bull, what do you get? Well, if you mess with the ram, you get horns too. Uh, And yet... It's not a symbol of warfare. I mean, it can be. You can blow it to announce the troops are advancing. At this time, it's an announcement of peace. And why is it an announcement of peace? As these trumpets are blowing on the first of Tishri, what the nation is doing is they're being alerted. Hey, there is a day of atonement coming. Guys, as it's the first of Tishri right now, What could be more important to us than focus on the fact that there's a day of atonement coming? There is a spiritual reality coming upon us called the kingdom of God that is a little bit like that bridge that we were talking about. You are either going to meet its requirements because God has formed and shaped your life or you're going to be crushed by the reality of the kingdom. And God didn't want anybody to be surprised by this day. So he had the whole nation blowing trumpets, blowing shofars, announcing at the top of their lungs. By the way, the fact that that comes from the king of the sheep, the ram, and that you have to hollow out his flesh and blood and fill it with your breath to make it sound is even more beautiful. But we don't have time for those things today. The first of Tishri announces Yom Kippur is coming. It occurs at a new moon when the primary night light of the heavens is darkened. In other words, it's an auspicious day. Uh, This first verse, on the first day of the seventh month, hold the sacred assembly. The word sacred assembly in Hebrew is mikra. And the reason that that is important is it also means rehearsal. It means sacred assembly, but it also means rehearsal. This day of trumpets is also a rehearsal for a later date. In fact, Jews did Passover in the first year with Moses, but they did Passover every year after that, commemorating or rehearsing what had happened. Think about what that means for us. Jesus died once, for instance, but we do the uh, uh, Lord's Supper often to commemorate what He did. It's a vicarious reliving of the event to reinstill the importance of it. Well, Tishri, the blowing of trumpets announcing that the Day of Atonement is coming was a rehearsal for a greater day, for a day coming upon the whole world for atonement. You know, I've never, I can't imagine any other time in history, maybe other than World War II in recent history where we needed to hear a trumpet sound More. Do you have a sense in our society that we're sliding and need a wake-up call? That we've hated the standard so much, we've said we can't live up to the standard so much that we've simply tried to redefine the ruler or the tape measure? You know, it, it's an interesting thing. You can love somebody, and as soon as your life brings conviction that they're not living well, they hate you even among those who claim to be the most tolerant on the planet. Why is that? Why can you sing worship music on a street corner, not, not say one negative thing, just love the Lord, and people hurl curses and insults at you? Does that sound tolerant to you? Why is it? It's because we hate that we're not living up to the standard, and when you see that someone else is, it, it hurts a little bit. God didn't want that hurt for you. You know what He wanted for you? He wanted you to live a full life, an abundant life, a wonderful life. If you're not living up to the standard, the trumpet is an announcement that it's time to get right, that there's a God who wants you to get right. Do you know how long there is between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement? There's exactly 10 days. Those 10 days are days of introspection. What if you took 10 days every year to examine whether or not you were living up to what God had revealed to you? What if you took 10 days every year and said, look, I know that we're all going to have to face the judgment seat of Christ for things done in the body, whether good or bad. With all my heart, I want to get this right. Would your life be better or worse? I think in the modern generation, we busy ourselves with things to the point that we don't have to spend 10 minutes in a day thinking about our actions and behaviors. I've noticed that even in a prayer meeting, it's very hard to get people to go an hour without checking their cell phones. Why do you think that is? Do you think that the enemy's trying to distract you? There's not enough firecrackers and not enough whistles and toys and pleasures in the world to distract us from the reality of the kingdom that will come upon us. The question is, when do we wake up? Do we wake up now or do we wake up later? During these 10 days, it was marked by a time of introspection. And the event is also the beginning of their civil year. In other words, the trumpet uh, month that it's blown in used to be the first month in the year. So this is their January, their New Year's Day, if you will. But it's interesting because during this time, something happens. In Hebrew, there's something called the Mazaroth. I don't know whether you all know what that is, but I'll write it here. Mazaroth is the way that the hebrews looked at the stars in the sky and they said there's twelve tribes and there's twelve signs in the heavens twelve constellations go figure and they assigned each one of the Maseroth to a tribe and they assigned each one of the Maseroth to a month the greeks borrowed this and called it a zodiac but understand the greeks borrowed it from the hebrews and they corrupted what the hebrews did By the way, in the Maseroth, in the month of Tishri, the Greeks called this Libra. And if you wanted to see what that looked like, those of you, because I'm certainly not in uh, uh, astronomy very often, it looks something like this. Scales. This month for the Hebrews would be a time when they were weighing their hearts, when God himself was putting them to the test. You know, in Hebrew, when you weigh something, it also means to honor it. It it, it turns out that that the whole world didn't use to write checks. When you wanted to pay for something, you had to weigh out your payment. How much honor that you gave somebody meant how much weight their word carried in your life, how much you valued their word, in your life, How much do you value God's Word? Is it an annoyance to you? Does it get in the way of your busy life? Or do you honor it enough to change what you're doing? Ask for His help to send you in a new direction. Because that's what this month is actually for. Their prayer system during this time was called Kol Nidri. They, they began to pray as a nation. Lord, all the vows that, uh, that we've made for you this year and we have been unable to keep... Uh, now now we recognize we didn't keep them, and we're sorry, Lord, would you help us? It's kind of where the idea of New Year's resolutions comes from. Uh, They made a connection to an ancient people called the Amalekites, and this is because in Exodus 17 and verse 6, put that one on the screen. Uh, You guys, you don't have to go there. This will be on the screen for you. We're going to move through it quickly. Uh, God had Moses stand up, uh, on a mountain, and he lifted his hands on the mountain, and Aaron and her stood on either side of him. And um, when they did this, it's actually a little further down in the text, but forgive me. Um, when they did this, somebody appeared in the valley. Joshua appeared in the valley to fight. And what happens is, as Israel is trying to leave Egypt, the enemy has attacked Can you relate to this? Anybody ever tried to do something for God? You're like, listen, I am broken by my sin. I don't want to do it anymore. In the name of Jesus, I'm going to walk a new direction. And all you get is resistance. That's what the Amalekites represent to the Hebrews. Because while they're trying to be the nation that God's formed them to be, they're being attacked mercilessly by these warlike valley dwellers. That's what Amalek means, warlike valley dweller. And you know, it's the first appearance of a guy named Joshua in the whole Bible. Joshua shows up in Exodus 17 to do warfare with the Amalekites. And as long as Moses stood with his hands held up and he he had to have two brothers hold up his hands, Joshua defeated the Amalekites. It's almost like if Moses would stand with the Word of God, the staff in his hand, and honor God's Word, then Joshua, whose name is the exact same Hebrew word as Jesus, would defeat the enemy in the valley for you. The question is not how strongly can you walk, how good can you walk. The question is how much do you honor his word. And if you honor his word, he will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. The first thing that Joshua did was he chose certain men among them and they went to war and defeated the Amalekites. During the month of Tishri, during this time at Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, the people remember the struggle with Amalek and they do something. They say, hey, there is a struggle still in every one of us. Sometimes it's outside of us, like the Red Sea and Pharaoh. And sometimes it's inside our number, like the Amalekites. But we have a duty to weigh ourselves in God's scale against the word and see whether we're winning or losing, make a proper assessment to make changes. What if the church did this every year? Do you think we'd be better off for it or worse? See, I think we'd be better off for it. They prayed every year during the Feast of Trumpets and still do with the leader of the congregation having a man on either side of him. Aaron and Hur stood beside Moses in Exodus 17 and Aaron's name uh, stands for nobility and Hur's name stands for uh, praise. There is something noble and praiseworthy about lifting God's word above your own word. You know, that's more than John 3.16 at a baseball game. What does it look like when you lift God's word above your word? Well, it's more economical that we do it this way, but God's word says we do it that way. Well, it's more expedient that we do it this way, but God's word says we do it that way. Is there evidence that you're actually honoring God's word in your life? Or do you view it more like a 65 mile an hour speed limit sign? you're pretty sure grace will cover you, but if God Himself shows up, you will slam on the brakes. The trumpets are blowing all around us. And they're blowing because He wants us to get right, not so that we're not right. Now, there's another thing that's happening in Tishri. Are you all bored? If you are, I'll stop. Okay, there's another thing happening in Tishri. Uh, There are seven kinds of produce in Israel. Does that surprise you? God is fascinated by sevens. The first is wheat. The second is barley. Uh, after barley comes grapes. Generally speaking, this is the order of their harvest, too. Then dates. After dates, pomegranates. After pomegranates, olives. And the last in the year, figs. Now, the one that corresponds to trumpets. It's pomegranates. Pomegranates are coming ripe at the time of Tishri. We say, well, what difference does that make? Well, if your nation's famous for only seven kinds of agriculture and you look forward to each kind and it means something special to you, it turns out that the pomegranates have six hundred and thirteen seeds in them. That's how God made pomegranates. And there were six hundred and thirteen commands that the people of God were supposed to honor that god gave so when they were going out to evaluate their lives they could pick a pomegranate that had just come ripe. they could break it open and with every one of the seeds they could recount what god had said to them this was a way of meditating on his word a way of going you know uh to be honest i'm not doing that well in this area lord and if you don't help me i'm gonna sink but i want your help i don't want to hit this spiritual reality i want to turn around Will you help me? And it turns out that he did want to help them. That's what the Day of Atonement was actually about. You know, another thing that they believe happened during Tishri. How many of you know who the man Joseph was in the Older Testament? Zaphanath Paneah, the Savior of the world, who rose to power in Egypt. Are you all familiar with Raise your hand if you're familiar with that. It turns out that the time of year that Hebrew tradition says that Joseph was in jail was between Shavuot and trumpets. And the time period when he interpreted the baker and the wine bearer's uh, dreams correctly, he was contemplating his own life because it was Rosh Hashanah. It was the time of trumpets. And in reflecting and getting right, listening to the voice of God, he was ready to interpret their dreams. Trumpets is not just about getting your life right. It's in getting your life right, you are preparing to sound the trumpet to other people? Would the world be better off if the Christians who are out there the loudest had actually spent some time reflecting on their own lives instead of just throwing big blocks of lumber at everyone else? I would love it if the body of Christ was characterized by deeds rather than words. You know, when we're thinking on these things, it might be worth noting that since Tishri was the original beginning of the year before the feasts were instituted, it was the first month, the world was created during the month of Tishri because it was the original first month. This means that when God created the world, it was in the month that He wanted men to reflect on their own lives. Perhaps this is why Philippians says what it says. Could we put Philippians 2 and verse 12 on the screen? Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Did we hear Pastor Wade share on that two messages ago? When they heard the word of God at the mountain, they heard the word of God with trembling and fear. It's said in the Newer Testament as fear and trembling because Hebrew is written correctly from right to left and Greek is written backwards from left to right. But it's the same thought. It's a Hebrew man writing Greek. And the point here being that to the astute observer of the Torah, salvation was not something to be taken for granted. It's not like driving down the road at 74 miles an hour in a 65 mile an hour zone going, I'm sure it'll be no problem, grace covers it. It was more like paying attention to the height or elevation of bridges. And the shofar sounding was saying, hey, wake up. Wake up, wake up, wake up. God wants to atone for you, but He only atones for those who know their condition and are hungry for change. Could we use some uh, shalom in here, some right order with God and man? As we leave the topic of tishri and the last uh, blowing of the trumpet, let me say this. One other integral part of Rosh Hashanah that I don't have time to teach on today is the Akedah Yitzhak. This is the telling of the story of Isaac. It happens at every Rosh Hashanah. So the Jewish nation focused on this uh, from the very first Feast of Trumpets forward. And the part of the story that they focus on is in Genesis 22, Isaac is taken up on a mountain with his father. Do you remember? Yes. A knife is raised above him, and God stops it. The first time love appears in the Bible is in those first few verses of Genesis 22. take your son, your only son, whom you love, go up on the mountain and show him, uh, go sacrifice him in a region I will show you. The son goes willingly up on the mountain. He follows the father. He's bound to wood by the father. But right as the father is about to kill him, God stops him. He looks over in a thicket, he sees a ram caught by his shofar, by his horns, caught in a thicket, and he sacrifices him instead. And you remember what Abraham named the mountain? Yahweh Yireh. On this mountain, the Lord will, in the future tense, will provide. It was a subtle message. When we're coming closer to the Feast of Trumpets, there will be a promised son coming. God would provide a promised son. It would not be your son that would die. It would not be like in Egypt. It would be God's son. He rehearsed this. He practiced it over and over and over. But that's not the only thing. Do you know that when God saves Isaac, the angel speaks and says, "Uh, now I know that you love me because you haven't withheld your son, your only son, right? And Isaac's mentioned right there in that verse. His mother dies in the next chapter, the 23rd chapter. Isaac's not mentioned anywhere. In Genesis 24 is the next mention of Isaac. That's a long gap in the narrative of Isaac. He disappears. He has a first coming. He disappears for a long, long time. And he shows up in chapter 24. Do you know what for? To get his bride. Chapter 24 is the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. Now for some of you this may seem deep. For others maybe you're bored. I don't know. But listen, God loves the people so much that there was 10 days every year that they would tell these stories and they would blow a trumpet getting their hearts right. We're in kind of a gap right now. Somewhere between Jesus' first coming and second coming. But the trumpet is a reminder that He will show up for His bride. What kind of shape are you in? Could you call your walk pure and spotless? I'm not trying to heap condemnation on you. I'm trying to tell you that there's a spiritual reality coming on the world and we want to be found within the kingdom of God. If you want that but you feel powerless to cause it, you want that but you don't really know what to do differently, there is a concept in the Bible called shalom. Jesus is that promised son. And that promised son has been provided for you. Just like they blew the shofar, a ram's horn, and that shofar announces atonement's coming, and just like they tell the story of the promised son, Isaac, the loved son, who a king of the sheep, a ram, and his horn uh, was substituted for that promised son, and they tell something to us. Jesus says in John fourteen let's put that on the screen. Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all these things and will remind you of everything that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. We're going to keep reading, but on this topic, Isaac had appeared on the mountain of Moriah in the region of Moriah and something had been substituted in his place. There was then a gap in the story while his mother perished. And he doesn't show back up until he's coming to get his bride in the story. And they told that every year. Jesus appeared on the mountain of Moriah. Nothing was given in his place. He was the sacrificial king of the sheep. And now he is taken from our sight. And he's talking about going away. And he says, my peace I leave with you. We're going to cover the concept of peace here quickly, but I want to show you what it goes for. Look at verse 28. You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you love me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world, say prince of this world, prince of this world. is coming, and he has no hold on me. Jesus Christ could say that the prince of this world was coming for him but had no hold on him. We can say that the prince of this world is coming for us, but we can't often say he has no hold on us. As soon as they came out of Egypt, Amalek attacked There was always a struggle, and Joshua had to come to the rescue as Moses honored the word of God. As soon as you set out to do something right for God, you are attacked. The prince of the world comes against you. Well, Jesus could say he has no hold on me, because earlier he said, I always do what my father tells me. Always. Can any of you say that? Can you say that you always do what the father tells you? Probably not. In Hebrew, this system here, this S in this H, is the letter shin. Uh, When you move to the uh, L sound, I'll draw that there. This is the Hebrew letter lamed. Lamed would be a better way to say it. When you move to the O, which in Hebrew vowels are different, but in any case, this is... um, The Vav in Hebrew. This last one over here, the what looks to us like an M is a mem in Hebrew. Now, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, their alphabet was established. They gave the alphabet to the world. In fact, Alf and Bet are the first two Hebrew letters. So when we think that we have a Greek alphabet, the Greeks borrowed it from somewhere, and where do you think they borrowed it? From the Hebrews. And it turns out that before we got the modern letters that we have on a typewriter, like most of the ancient languages, they were, Paleo-Hebrew was pictographic. It it looked like symbols that you could teach. You've heard me teach on this with Ab and Ahab and Abraham and uh, Sarah and those. Well, the Shin looked something like that. Kind of like a W, but this, in their mind was two front teeth your front teeth particularly these incisors front teeth were a way to teach the hebrew children the concept of destroy because this is what you devoured things with it's what you consumed things with when you looked at the lamed the next sound in this the lamed was a letter that looks kind of like the crook of a shepherd's staff. Okay, that's how the pictograph went. That was supposed to remind them of the shepherd's staff. You have to understand in the ancient world, the shepherd, particularly among the Hebrews, he represented authority. He had the authority to govern the sheep. He had the authority to control the flocks, and the flocks were life the vav looked very much like our modern letter y but it was symbolizing a tent spike that you hammered in the ground it was easy to teach the kids this system because it looked like things that they were familiar with in everyday life of course the tent peg is used to attach things so the letter vav came to symbolize also not just a sound but the word attached. When you get to Mem, they wanted to find a way to express chaos, and they said, when you look out at the ocean and it's rough, wave after wave after wave, that is chaos. Uh, Almost all the words for water in Hebrew, maim, um, kaim, maim, living water, those kind of words, they all contain this letter, but the letter itself that looked like water to them, symbolized chaos. When a Hebrew says peace, he does not mean the cessation of hostilities. Jesus did not give you a trouble-free, easy life. When Jesus said, my peace I give unto you, what he is saying is, my shalom I give unto you, my ability to destroy the authority attached to chaos in your life. That is what I'm giving you. See, you can have a sewer leak and you can clean up the sewage and go, hey man, we fixed the problem. But you didn't fix the problem, you fixed the symptom. The Feast of Trumpets is a time when you can evaluate your life to see what is causing chaos. And Jesus Christ gives you His ability to destroy the one that is causing chaos. Chaos in your life. The Bible teaches that we have an enemy. In this scripture, he was called the prince of this world. In other scriptures, he's called Satan. James 4.7 says it this way. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. When we submit to Jesus, he gives us his ability to destroy the authority attached to to chaos in our lives. You want to know why your life is not going the way you want it to? You're not submitted to the Word of God. Where we submit to the Word of God, that act of submission, Lord, you said go this way, I'm going to go that way, and you don't stop until He gives you new instructions, that will in itself cause the devil to flee from you. Why do you think the Amalekites attacked the Israelites when they came out of Egypt? Why do you think every time you've tried to make a new start in your life, you were attacked? Because the devil knows that if he attacks you, you will probably stop, resi- stop submitting to the Lord and turn back. You'll repent in the face of the devil, but you will not repent in the face of God. He knows if he puts enough pressure on you, if he makes Christianity costly enough, you won't value it enough, you won't honor it enough in the weight of your scales. Because the cop is not present in the room, you'll figure grace will cover it. But the spiritual reality is that if you simply will stand fast, holding fast to the Lord, he will make the devil flee from you. You know, you never know how close you came to success as long as you keep giving up. I want to share with you, I have shared now from the law, the writings, and the New Testament. I want to close with you from the prophets. One of the reasons that I love the prophets the way they do is in the law, the heart of man is addressed. In the prophets, though, the soul of a man, the working out what God has said and how I carry it out in my flesh is addressed. In the writings, your strength is addressed, how you carry it out. And I can relate to the prophet's. They have a unified theme. What they're basically saying over and over and over is, hey, God's called you to the promised land, but your sin will cause you to not get there. Don't sin, right? We say, thank you very much. Come back next week and we'll have the, the same message. But what happens during the time of Tishri is you find out that that's not the whole message. God wants to help you with your sin. He he wants to put you on good footing. Turn with me to Isaiah 57. This would be the last scripture that we read today. But it would be worth it. By the way, Jesus' ministry, the time period that He went into the desert after His baptism... It was the month right before Tishri. He began his ministry near the beginning, the first day of Tishri. He was blowing the trumpet of the word of God with the words, Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. It was the acknowledgement that a spiritual reality was coming upon the world. You in Isaiah 57? Isaiah 57, let's pick up in verse 14. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road. Remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. Say my people. people. You want to know what God is like? He wants to remove every obstacle that would keep you from running to Him. You know how we remove it? We trust Jesus and we move forward even if it looks like it's our death. He will destroy the authority attached to chaos in our lives. How did this happen for Israel? They were marched out into a peninsula with the Red Sea at their back and Pharaoh at the other side. But in the end, was Israel destroyed or was the enemy destroyed? The enemy was. Do you trust the Lord? Do you trust Him enough not just to try Him for a week or two weeks, but to say, Lord, whether I live or die, I will die or live trusting You. For this is what the high and the lofty one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and a holy place. That sounds unreachable, huh? But also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. God lives in a high and a holy place, but also very near to the one who is broken by the evaluation of their life. When you get to that spiritual reality that says, the bridge is only so high and I don't fit, He rushes in to remake your heart. You know who He's not close to? the one that hates the sign, the one that will not acknowledge that the problem's with them and not the sign. He's not close to them. Have you ever seen the people that He rebuked the harshest in the New Testament? They were the religious crowd because they already believed they were right. But the whores and the tax collectors and the politicians that were broken by their sin. He received them because He knew He could change them. He knew He could give them His peace. He could destroy the authority attached to their chaos if they just submitted to Him. I live in a high and a holy place, but also with Him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. After you've been in an all night rave, after you've done things that you're ashamed of, let me ask you is revived the word that you would use to describe your state the next morning? The things that we think will bring us happiness, the pleasures that we've sought in the hope that it would somehow fulfill our soul. They do just the opposite. It is a crushing weight we were never meant to bear. But submitting to the living God revives you. He breathes life back into you. We are in a month, in a ten day period where we know atonement is coming. And the question is, does God want us to get right or is He against us? And the answer is, He wants to move every obstacle out of your way that you would come to Him. I will not accuse forever, nor will I always be angry, for then the spirit of man would grow faint before me. The breath of man that I have created, He is a loving Father and He knows you could not endure His discipline forever. He knows that you cannot live with His disapproval forever. So He only shows you His disapproval so that you'll see your life won't fit in His kingdom as it is. It must change. I was enraged by his sinful greed. I punished him and hid my face in anger, yet he kept on in his willful ways. This is God speaking about mankind. What kind of ways? Willful. When we knew it was wrong and we kept doing it anyway, and our greed and lust for more caused us to do more and more evil, that enraged God. But he goes on to say in verse 18, the very next verse, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. He's seen you at your worst, and he's ready to heal you now. The church world likes to add Jesus to their life. I was a pretty good old boy, and then, you know, I found Jesus. No, God says he was enraged with your willful sin but He will heal you anyway if you will come to Him. The Word of God was meant to put you on a collision course with the reality of the kingdom. And the reality of the kingdom is without being born from above, without being born again, there is no place for you in the kingdom. That's not mean. That's not narrow-minded. That's the announcement well in advance that God's reality is. And we have to change to meet it. That's what that is. I have seen His ways, but I will heal Him. I will guide Him and restore to Him or comfort to Him. Creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. In Hebrew, when you want to say something emphatically... Uh, Let's see how we would do this in English. You would say something to the extent of, that is very, very good. Okay, when you want to say something emphatically in Hebrew, you repeat the same word twice. Shalom, shalom to those far and near. Hey! Those of you that are close, I can destroy the authority that is causing chaos in your life. Those of you who are far, I can destroy the authority that is causing chaos in your life. Your life will not now fit in my kingdom. Will you please be broken and contrite by your condition so that I can work on your behalf? Will you please give weight and honor to my word so that I can come in and fix your situation? I wanted to dwell with you, not punish you. That's the heart of our God. He's a loving Father. But the wicked are like a tossing sea. Chaos. But the wicked are like a tossing sea, which cannot rest whose waves cast up mire and mud. Do you remember the psalmist says, I was trapped in the mire and the mud, but He rescued me. There is no shalom, says my God, for the wicked. If you love chaos and that's where you want to live, He will not make you change. He simply gives you the invite. God is pro-life, but He gives you a choice. He set before us life and death. And he says, now choose life. He said, for the Lord your God is your life. I stood up here today knowing I wanted to preach about a shofar. Knowing that I wanted to preach about the concept of shalom. And that was it. You're free to examine the notes. That, That was it. If something in this message touched on an area in your heart or your life, you have to come to a conclusion. It has nothing to do with this fat, balding, bearded preacher. It's got everything to do with God's desire for you. It's got everything to do with Him calling you to Himself. Everything to do with saying, is there a person who will be obedient and trying to remove obstacles out of the way of those that would come to me? Now there are those in the church world that in the name of compassion are removing obstacles. The problem is they see the Word of God as the obstacle. The Word of God is not the obstacle, it's the liberator. The obstacle is the sin. That's the obstacle. Look, I'm going to close with a sewed. If you don't know what that is, I'm going to close with a revelation for you. When Adam and Eve were in a garden and they ate... FROM A TREE OF KNOWLEDGE OF GOOD AND EVIL, IT SAYS THEIR EYES WERE OPENED. WHAT DID THEY SEE? THEY SAW nakedness. THEY SAW DEATH, THEY SAW BROKEN CREATION. WHEN THEIR EYES WERE CLOSED TO ALL OF THAT, ALL THEY COULD SEE WAS GOD. JESUS PRAYED AND OPENED PEOPLE'S EYES. He prayed that we would have eyes to see. So which is it? Do we need open or or closed eyes? We need eyes that are open to God and closed to the world. We need eyes that are closed to the world and open to God. And you cannot have your attention split. You know who tried to do it? Samson. He tried to do it. He tried to be God's man and he tried to live a selfish life all at the same time. How did his life go? It was horrible, chaos, destruction. You know when his life started to get right? When God allowed his eyes to be poked out. His eyes were now closed to the world and for the first time in years, he says, Lord, what do you really want of me? What you're really hearing me do is make my strongest possible appeal to you. Don't wait until your eyes are put out. Don't wait till you've crushed yourself under the bridge. Read the signs there is a shofar blowing saying you can have shalom. It's blowing. In fact, every one of us who has been bought by the blood of the king of the sheep, every one of us who have had a circumcised heart in life, we've been hollowed out of the flesh and the blood, every one of us that are now filled with his spirit are sending one resounding message just like the blowing of that shofar. He got us right. He got us right and we were just as bad off as you. Sometimes we still fight with the same things you're fighting with. But He got us right. He's helping us. He'll help you too. Tishri's is a time to say you can be atoned for. Could you all stand to your feet?